Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Friday, June 2nd. We begin with our weekly conversation with Mayor Jyoti Gondek. This time out, the mayor gives us her thoughts on the provincial election, specifically what she believes the top priorities should be for the UCP government when it comes to the city of Calgary. Have you heard of birth tourism? Well, it's not a new trend. It's garnered a lot more attention in the past few years. And now healthcare professionals are looking for ways to address the issue. We tackle the topic with Simrit Barar, OBGYN at the Foothills Medical Centre. And finally, CPR is standard for us humans, but would you know how to perform CPR on your pet? We discuss the steps you can take if your furry friend is facing a health emergency with Dr. Julie Schell from the Bullbottom Veterinary Hospital. Yes, it's Mayor Jyoti Gondek. We love catching up with her each and every Friday. What are the city's top priorities for the new provincial government? Joining us to discuss this and the latest, all you need to know from City Hall is Mayor Gondek. Good morning to you, Madam Mayor. Good morning. How are you? Good, good. We're going to talk about fireworks in a few. Okay. Who would have thought that we'd be talking about fireworks for a few weeks here on the program? But we'll <laughs> get there in a second. But let's begin with the election results. Would either party have made a difference uh, to the city of Calgary? How, how, how do you see this? I know you, you want to remain apolitical, but um, I guess you were willing to work with either party. Uh, what do you see moving ahead with the UCP? Well, I think we've got a lot of relationships that we have already forged with the UCP, and we will continue to build on those so we can you know, pick up where we left off. And then we will wait and see uh, which ministers are appointed to different portfolios, what their mandate letters are, and we'll start building those relationships. I mean, ultimately, for us... Um, regardless of who holds government, we need to work with them to make sure that we're delivering on infrastructure commitments and programs for Calgarians. Have you had a chance to speak yet with the newly elected Premier Danielle Smith? And if you do, you know, or have, what's the messaging that goes on between the two of you? I haven't had a chance yet. I did uh, send a text congratulations uh, the night of the election, and uh, we have sent a letter and, again, congratulated the party and also indicated that we're hoping to meet um, as soon as it is possible. And you have to remember things are incredibly chaotic right after an election. I'm sure she is figuring out uh, what her cabinet's going to look like, what her team within the premier's office is going to look like. So, you know, it's always polite to give people some time to get their things in order before you sit down with them. Mayor, we had the, the you know a, a couple of texts in the past couple of weeks from people involved in business, energy business, construction, whatever it may be, saying that you know things were on hold until after the election. This decision is going to shape things differently. Was that the case with the city as well? Is is it a case that it didn't really matter to you business as usual, or were there uh, you know kind of a wait and see attitude to see who would be in office? Well, there's some things that we have to wait on, obviously, because we need approvals from different ministries or the Treasury Board. So it was a bit of a waiting game. But for the most part, we need to carry forward to deliver the services that we are expected to deliver to our residents. And uh, we continue with the long-term vision that we have. So, you know, we stayed the course and we just waited to see who took office. Before the election, uh, Danielle Smith kind of alluded to the fact that, uh, you know, if we wanted this arena deal to go ahead, that uh, the UCP needed to come to power to make that happen. Will that be a priority to sort of continue to push for that? Or is, is that all sort of still working in the background anyway? So the agreements in principle that were signed back in April are now moving forward into the more um, structured deal format. And so that's going on with all of the parties at the table. I believe that, um, you know, once cabinet is formed and treasury board is in place, uh, they will receive the agreements in principle and determine how they will deliver on that promise. Interesting stuff. Okay, now let's get into the fireworks. Okay. We're not going to have fireworks. 
could we be having fireworks? Now we're going to be having fireworks. Tell us how this uh, resolved and, and, and a bit of a path to the resolution to see fireworks in the sky again. So I think it was interesting messaging that came from administration. I, I think it missed the mark, and that's what created all of this turmoil. The decision to move the site for fireworks away from the municipal building was rooted in the fact that last year there was debris from the fireworks that came down on the Indian Residential School Memorial, which is terrible. We didn't want to repeat that. We didn't want to go to Center Street Bridge and have the same problem over Chinatown. So Fort Calgary was chosen as the site, and it was determined that the fireworks would be from the main stage. But the word fireworks wasn't used. It was called a pyrotechnic display. And so I think people thought that Canada Day fireworks and Canada Day overall was gone, when in fact there was increased programming for families throughout the day and the fireworks were to be from the stage. So now that we've heard from Calgarians and we understand that the miscommunication was a major issue, there will also be an aerial display that will take place from Stampede Grounds can't gather there, obviously, because they're getting ready for the 10-day festival, but there will be two sets of fireworks, one that's aerial and one that's from the stage. Uh, and we did uh, see that uh, city manager David Duckworth said he was sorry for how the situation played out, the confusion that was caused. I'm just curious, and, and we got a lot of people asking this question, how can a decision like that be made by a city department and it not go through council and the mayor? There are many decisions that are made that are operational in their nature. And so, you know, everything doesn't come to us. With this one, I think the biggest gap was the determination of having uh, stage-bound fireworks, that not being communicated to council before everything went public. So all of the questions that the public had were the questions that we had as well. So I think it was a communication breakdown. And that kind of information needs to come to us well in advance of an announcement going to public so we can explain what was happening. We know a, a great city we have here, Madam Mayor, and we know the, you know, moving into the future and, uh, you know, those things that we do to try to make it a better place for all of us to live. Now, it does. we don't need this validation, but the Washington Post has called Calgary the model city for transforming downtowns. Uh, why do you think that this is getting so much attention? Because... Uh, you know, it sounds like on paper it's a it's a it's a no-brainer to do what we've done with the downtown core and the revitalization. There's many cities that did not follow the same course that we did, and um, I'm incredibly proud of the team that came together to bring the downtown revitalization strategy to council. This was a group of individuals from the commercial real estate sector, uh, downtown building property owners, it was tenants, it was people from downtown associations and our administration and community groups that came together and said, look, we all believe that this is the way forward. And when you have that kind of community-based thinking, council felt that it was important to move forward. And once we invested in ourselves, we started to see the private sector coming forward and saying, you know what, if you believe in yourselves, we believe in you too. And we now have 10 office to residential conversions that are taking place. We have taken 1 million square feet and turned it from office to about 1,200 units of housing, which is incredible. And that was an $86 million investment in the conversion incentive that drew $189 million from the private sector. So it is a success story because it was a group decision. I love it and it's brilliant and I hope we can continue with it and that others learn from it too. Are there other things beyond that though? I mean, there's got to be more about, you know, when you talk about transforming a downtown, it's more than just flipping office space to residential. What are some of the others that we might not be as aware of? 
Absolutely. You have to create um, quality of life for people. So we're making sure that we've got a proper mix of uses inside buildings. And what that basically means is if in your course of your day, you need to go for a dental checkup or lab work or drop your dog off to, you know, have its nails trimmed or whatever it is, that you're able to access all of those things in the various buildings that are within the core. The other important thing is programming. So you need to make sure that people have something to do. So one of the other projects that's, you know, underway right now is the transformation of Arts Commons, as well as Olympic Plaza and the Glenbow. That is a great jewel right in the middle of our city. So it's all about creating a proper community that people want to visit, that people want to live in and people want to work in. Just before we let you go, uh, Madam Mayor, let's uh, see if there's any updates uh, that you can offer up on the arena and the event center. Well, as I said, we will have to wait to see um, who is part of the Treasury Board and then the work begins to ensure that they understand the value of this project and uh, we can move forward with funding it. So we're, we're just waiting. Sit and wait. We like to do that, especially when it comes to that arena deal and the uh, whole event centre and, and how that's going to shape our downtown. It should be fantastic once we get there. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you and have a great weekend, everyone. You too. Happy weekend. Jyoti Gondek is the Mayor of Calgary. Birth tourism is adding extra strain on our healthcare system. Joining us to talk about the issue is Dr. Samrit Brahar, who is an OBGYN at Calgary's Foothill Medical Center. Good morning to you, doctor. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. Can you can you explain, kind of break down and, and define for us what exactly is birth tourism? So we have um, defined birth tourism through our work as a, a subset of population of people who are choosing to come to uh, Calgary, Canada to deliver their babies um, with um, no intention to stay following, so no desire to stay long term. So it's really for the purpose of giving birth and then returning home, um, which is a bit different than some of the other subset of populations that we've noticed without Alberta Healthcare. So, so what would be the benefit? What is the purpose behind this, uh, Dr. Barar, in the sense that I'm assuming that there'd still be a cost involved since they're not residents? 100%. So this is, this is a very interesting uh, question that you pose, and this is the question we would often ask ourselves. So over the last 10 to 15 years, my colleagues and I had noticed that um, people who were coming to Canada without Alberta healthcare, non-residents of Canada were increasing, and we didn't have really clear numbers or understanding as to why this was happening. So that prompted us to do um, some studying and some kind of organization to better understand and, and support our care providers with, um, with what's happening. And um, what the majority of patients that we studied looked at had said was that they were coming to either uh, obtain Canadian citizenship for their babies um, or to, um, you know, take advantage of the of the excellent Canadian healthcare system. Uh, to your point about um, payments, one of the nuances of of Canada is for for many years, I think you know, as as Canadians, we're we're really nice. We you know, transactional uh, transactions of money are not something that we do commonly within healthcare, particularly over the last 15 years. So there was not a lot of fee collection that was happening. So Canada was kind of known to be a little bit different than our neighbours to the south and that perhaps there would not be a bill. So you can see why that would be a strain in terms of doctors' resources then, obviously, in the healthcare system as a whole for folks who we wouldn't normally assume would be using the services in the province. So how does that ultimately cost the province money? Or is it more about the resources or is it both? I think it's both. I think it's both. So there there was a, a paper that we had done that sort of quantified 
some of the cost factors. So the cost factors are multifactorial. So the utilization of AHS space, so, you know, admission to hospital, NICU admission, ICU admission, et cetera. Um, the fees of the providers that are, are provisioning this care. But what really became clear was the, the utilization of the resource. And I think this is something that has really become front and center over the last few years as we struggle generally with access, um, access to healthcare. And we had started noticing that, you know, particularly in maternity care where service provision is limited. You know, we are, we are not generally funded in the same way as orthopedics or, you know, hips, et cetera. And so, we have struggled with service provision for maternity care um, in Calgary Zone for quite some time. So access to our anesthetists, to our physicians, to the bed space, the actual allocation of that space, um, and the nurses was also was definitely also an issue. Okay, so, so what can we do to address this, Dr. Barr? I, I wonder oh, this if is a it's great a key... question. Yeah, and, and, a... do other countries have the same issue, or is this a Canadian issue? This is this is uh, really become a, a Canadian issue. Um, I think that there have been some changes in other countries looking to address that. And you know, I would love to find the person who has the answer to this. I am a clinician. Um, you know, not a policymaker, but certainly we have recognized that this is causing some definitely undue strain. And I, it would be interesting to see how different areas of the country are dealing with this. I know this is an issue in Vancouver and in Toronto, and this really does highlight that overlap between federal, the federal, you know, um, involvement in healthcare provision versus, you know, the provincial involvement. So I think there has to be some greater discussion. Our data showed the, the biggest, in, you know, impetus for doing this was access to that Canadian citizenship. I do want to be really clear here, though, that this, there are different subsets of population. So as we start navigating down this, this sort of path of uninsured um, birth in Canada, uh, not all people are birth tourists. And when we had done this research, that's what became really clear, is that uninsured, you know, um, birth uh, desire an uninsured individual with a desire to give birth in Canada they don't always fall under the same umbrella right and so I think we have to be very nuanced and careful in this approach of how do we look at this you know or how do you define a birth tourist um, I will share an, an interesting story in some of our data that we had collected we actually there are some Canadian citizens who have moved elsewhere in the world who choose to come back to Canada to deliver their babies, um, but don't want to assume the provincial health care. Uh, and that was because they didn't want to sort of have to be, um, have to pay taxes here mm -hmm. or have residents here. And so that also provides an interesting conversation, right? How do we define this? How do we, you know, how do we, um, how do we come up with sort of a universal way of, of separating these nuanced groups of population? So, and, and, you know, a person who is a resident here, but maybe their paperwork is just lapsed a little bit, right? Um, and they're waiting because there's certainly a long wait to access that Alberta health care sometimes, even though all your paperwork is in order. That's a very different population, right? So I think, um, you know, some really strong minds coming together, hopefully we'll be able to come up with some solutions. Yeah, for sure. Need to some put some parameters on that, right? I'm sorry, did you mention yet the the cost of birth birth tourism and what it, it is actually costing the healthcare system in the province of Alberta? So there is a study that we had done um, that is published online through the BMJ, and in that study, I don't have it in front of me right now. We had looked at the unpaid bills. Now, this is interesting because in the costing analysis, we can't 
it's very difficult to factor in the cost of utilization of care, right? So that that space of the bed may not be reflected in that cost. And I think there was um, close to 700,000 of unpaid um, bills just within our zone for a small population. Mm. Um, And that was just the AHS cost. You know, an, an interesting thing that has come up in terms of talking about utilization, et cetera, because, you know, people will always say, well, if people want to pay, why can't they just come and pay? Um, and one of the things that has also become very clear over the last few years is we are very resource limited. We are not a finite resource, right? Um, and so, though the notion of, sure, you know, I'm going to open up a spot, you know, on the, yeah, I'm going to open up a building and, and offer uh, births for people coming out of country, who's going to staff that, right? We're already limited. That mm-hmm. takes away the staffing. And that's a really, um, a nuanced view of some of this, you know, as we look at the delivery of private, you know, pay for healthcare, um, there's some complexities there, right? Maybe not everybody is suitable to be having their baby in a private healthcare system. Maybe they need to access, you know, a high risk center like the Foothills Hospital, for example. And then how, what happens then to sort of people who are um, residents of that area where access is already limited? How do we, how do we delineate that further? So it is very complex. Very interesting topic. Thank you so much, Dr. Barr, for your time. My pleasure. That is Dr. Simrit Abar. Uh, Obgen, uh, OBGYN. You can tell, can you tell him I'm, I'm a man? <laughs> OBGYN at Calgary's Foothills Medical Center. CPR is standard for humans should an emergency arise, but do you know what to do if your furry friend is facing a health emergency? Joining us to talk about keeping our pets safe and healthy this summer and beyond is Dr. Julie Shell, who is a veterinarian at Bowbottom Vet Hospital. Good morning to you, Dr. Shell. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Pet CPR, that actually is a thing. Should we as pet owners know how to do that or is that for the experts? Oh, absolutely. There's definitely bystander CPR, which is very effective and very helpful. The sooner the animal can receive help when they're in distress, the better. And so there are wonderful courses that you can take on specifically feline, canine, animal in general CPR and you can definitely talk to your veterinarian on where to get those courses they're often uh, trained by their educate the education is by wonderfully trained people that can go out to certain community centers or outreach programs and totally teach people some of the bare basics to keep your cat and dog as healthy as you can until you can reach professional veterinary care. Dr. Shell, I would think that, you know, just like a CPR with a human, you don't just want to watch a video. You want to really make sure you're professionally trained. Oh, absolutely. There's some really good programs and they're not that challenging. And basically we often will use like dummies, like, you know, like stuffed, um, like fake animals, like toys. Uh, everybody at their practice has some toys that we've demonstrated CPR onto our teams. Um, but yeah, definitely it's good to go in person because your brain and your Uh, muscles will kind of get into a memory formation. It's much easier to remember to do things when you're in a strict, scary, frightening emergency situation Mm -hmm. when you rehearsed it in person on a stuffed animal. Yep. This conversation kind of came about because our our producer on the morning show had a pet emergency and and didn't know how to do the Heimlich or pet CPR, that sort of thing. And I'm pretty sure he does now, but it is something you should talk about because you never know when something might go wrong and our, our furry friends aren't able to talk to us the way, you know, a human might be able to. So can we talk to about maybe some of the other hazards for pet owners that we need to be aware of? 
Oh, absolutely. It's important. Like pets are very small things. They are, they almost remind me of a human baby and even definitely an adolescent child. They are delicate creatures, even though they're strong and they have instinctual survival skills. And the most important thing is they can get into a lot of dangers inside the house and outside the house. So it's really important to like pet proof your home. Try to prevent problems before they become a reality. Like prevention, one ounce of prevention is absolutely worth a pound of cure. And so it's important to look at the habitat of your house. Talk to your veterinarian on ways you can prevent a lot of injuries and a lot of like toxicities. And that's the thing too. Sometimes you might walk up to a pet and see that they look like they're in distress, that they look like they're maybe uh, not breathing well, but really they could be just coughing. They might not necessarily be choking, but they're just coughing. And in a cat, they absolutely look terrified. Their their eyes are wide. They're like stretched out um, on the floor. Their neck is often extended. And it's very scary to hear these noises that they can produce when they're in a state of stress. And so it's important to kind of like figure out um, first of all, if you're, is your cat choking, which is, which is an imminent danger, you have to get that object out of the throat if you possibly can, or if the cat is just like in an asthma attack or coughing. And so your veterinarian is very good at helping you kind of like learn the difference between the two. Um, there's even like, believe it or not, really good YouTube videos that mm. um, veterinarians have posted that shows the difference between coughing and choking. And so these are things that your veterinarian can direct you towards uh, so that you can recognize the bare basic differences in those types of similar emergency situations. But yeah, definitely um, pet proofing your home, getting rid of toxic plants, getting rid of tall, tall objects that the animal can fall off of, getting rid of dangerous toys. Like we see a lot of toys that are inappropriately chosen so that the cat or the dog might have something that's way too small and can get lodged in their airway. And similarly, foods. Animals are very loving of food. And so if they do find something delicious, they might want to like just chew it down quickly before another animal can see it. And so it's important to ask your veterinarian what types of toys are safe, how big can a treat be, choosing the correct size of food item for the, the tiny little animal um, that, you are, that are, you are offering um, the food to. Absolutely. Speaking with Dr. Julie Schell from the Bow Bottom Veterinary Hospital. And Dr. Schell, it is summertime. We love to get outdoors, but summer mm-hmm. can also bring some hazards uh, to our furry friends. Tell us some of the hazards we should be aware of when it comes to summer and our pets. That's an excellent question. And the first one that, that comes to everybody's attention is the heat. Animals don't like the heat very much. Um, some of them seem to like love basking out in the sun for a short period of time, but that small, short time of pleasure might immediately turn into something that's dangerous. They can get overheated within seconds and they can get dehydrated even inside the person's home. Like there are cases where if there's not enough air conditioning and there is direct sunlight coming into the person's home, then the cat or the dog can absolutely suffer tremendously to the point of even death. So it's important to provide nice, comfortable, cool environments for your pet. And the basements are one of my favorite places for pets to hang out if you don't have air conditioning in your house. And also if you don't have a basement and if you're on a main floor, try to cover your windows like good old tinfoil. That stuff is very reflective. It's like the Alberta Chrome. So bring that out and definitely you can provide floor lying fans for your pets so they can hang out in front of the fan when they get too cold. And you can provide cooling mats. There's some really good technology now. You can provide a bowl of ice cubes. So that's like indoor dangers that can be really easily prevented. Outside dangers include 
a lot of insects. There's there's a lot of ticks. I've seen them already this year multiple times on my patients. There's a lot of mosquitoes. And it's not just the tick bite that can be irritating, but it's actually what they can transfer into the body. So it's like a double danger. The tick can bite the animal and cause even allergic reactions, but they can also transfer many different diseases, including Lyme disease, but more than that. Like there's Ehrlichia, Anaplasma, um, there's like Rocky Mountain spotted fever. And same thing, mosquitoes. It's not just the bite one that's annoying and pesky. It's actually they can transfer heartworm mm-hmm. disease and they can cause infections in the pet. It's really dangerous. So outdoor environment and indoor environment, it's good to check out, ask your veterinarian how to see safeguard your environment for your pet. Great advice for sure. Uh, one question I wanted to ask you before we let, let you go, doctor, and uh, fireworks mm. have been a big topic of discussion in the city the past couple of weeks. H- how yeah. do we kind of make sure that our animals are comfortable during, you know, loud summer celebrations like fireworks? I know a lot of people whose dogs go nutty when the fireworks begin or anything, thunder even, for example. D- do cats suffer the same way and what can we do for them? Absolutely. That's a very good observation. And cats are so good at hearing things. They can hear things miles away because they are a predator as well as a prey species. And so it's good to have background noise to kind of like drown out the really loud, scary noises. Mozart certain certain um, piano like that's classical music is very soothing there's been scientific studies proving that animals really do well with mozart or even drum beats so like country music reggae things like that are very soothing to animals and often you'll find animals hanging out around a piano when people are playing it that is a true thing they are attracted to that classical music so absolutely having background noise knowing that you have to leave your cat at home during a, a potential um, firework situation. You can also have essential oil therapy to relax your cat and pheromone therapy for dogs and cats, and that will help relax them. The sense of smell is very, very developed in an animal, and it can direct them into like a state of calm almost immediately. It's good to also provide comforting toys for the animal to play with. Some cats even love to watch television. Like there's cat television that don't have that do not have any scary sounds. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, and they can like watch these things. So definitely, there's um, one ways that you can keep your cat excited um even like catnip some cats really like catnip and there's special herbs essential oils as well as like drug drugs you can absolutely ask your veterinarian for a um, medical drugs that will help calm your cat for like hours at a time and they're very safe even um to use when you're not with the cat it's good to use those types of drugs ahead of time just to make sure the cat doesn't have a serious overdose reaction um but yeah definitely there's some excellent pharmaceuticals as well as natural products that you can use and veterinarian can help guide you with that for sure dr shell thank you so much for your time this morning we appreciate it thank you it was a pleasure talk with you that is uh, dr julie shell a veterinarian at the bow bottom veterinary hospital